0: This is Colonia Cast episode 44. Today, we are joined by Dr. Arthur Georges, who is a distinguished professor at the University of Canberra. Uh, Dr. Georges is the former foundation director uh, at the Institute for Applied Ecology at University of Canberra. He's also on the steering committee for the IUCN turtle, Tortoise and Freshwater Turtle Specialist Group. Uh, he's done an incredible amount of work looking at the ecology, evolution, and systematics of turtles and tortoises. Uh, focusing on Australian kelids and Australian turtles. Uh, We're really excited to talk to him today.
1: Uh, Thank you for coming on. Yeah, great to be with you. So, Dr. Georges, what first got you interested in turtles?
2: Um, I guess, you know, it's a funny thing that uh, many people sort of work out what they're going to do by age seven. Like, I don't know if you've seen that uh, 7-Up series where they follow people every seven years starting at age seven. And uh, quite a few of them have said what they wanted to be when I was seven, and it transpired that that's, uh, that's what they became. And so I, I had some turtles when I was uh, seven. I was very proud of it. I had more turtles than anyone else in the, in the suburb, and I had a father who was tolerant enough to build me a pond in the backyard. And I learned a lot about turtles um, as a youngster, and uh, I guess that might have set my uh, trajectory sort of without me knowing. Um, uh, to to be uh, fascinated by turtles, uh, and, and to move into that area of research.
0: That's that's cool. It's a lot of people. For us, I think it was very similar, and we're sort of sort of younger still, but kind of getting involved early on, and and have just carried along with the passion.
1: I think so, that's one of the few stories we've heard so far that doesn't directly involve red eared sl-
2: <laughs> Yeah, well yeah i i didn't see red eared sliders but I had um, the eastern long neck turtle which was yep. uh fairly common at the time around brisbane not so much now I think maybe knocked out by the cane toads uh but um yeah my cousin had uh he collected turtles from all over the state and so that that sort of was uh pretty interesting to me. he was a lot older than me yeah.
0: Maybe we can start with that, actually. That was something that that your lab's doing a lot of work with, uh, the, the eastern long neck and tracking movement and, and sort of response to urbanization. Uh, maybe just you could give us a rundown about what you found that's particularly interesting with with that species and um, and sort of how they're distributed.
2: Yeah, so the eastern long neck turtle's really uh, widespread in uh, eastern and southeastern Australia. And... Um, it's got a really interesting life history, a sort of a cryptic life history. It spends a lot of time on land, um, and I mean that's not unusual for some of your North American species, but in Australia with keeled tootles, that's quite unusual. So these these animals um, are ephemeral water specialists. So they they um, really do well when the periods are wet and the swamps and rain pools and across the landscape, and they get out into that that area and, and they they get out there and there's no fish there because fish can't get there no competitors They eat earthworms and all sorts of food that's um in the productivity boom following um you know the flooding of wetlands and that's their that's their specialization but of course in australia you know we're a land of flooding rains and droughts and when the droughts come uh all those areas dry up and so they have a they make a choice they either go up into the into the terrestrial areas and east of eight, underneath the leaf uh, litter and they can last up but we've we've monitored them for over, over a year uh, in a terrestrial um, situation without going back to water or they migrate across land to permanent water um, that's within their home range and so they've got these dual strategies which is uh, really interesting. And uh, we've also looked at how they navigate, and they use the sun to navigate. So what happens when it rains? The turtles all come out of the permanent water, and then they sit and wait until the cloud goes away. And once the sun comes out, they navigate out to their ephemeral water bodies where they, where they, um, you know, really boom. Um, so, so they've got this sort of pulse um, that goes on. Uh, our drought cycle could be from seven to fifteen years. So they have this. Pulse going where they move out into the ephemeral waters, come back to the permanent waters. When they're in the permanent waters, incredible densities. They stop growing, they stop reproducing, they just sit there and wait for the seven years or whatever until the drought breaks, and then out they go again into the ephemeral waters, and then they grow and breed, and everything happens in those uh, sort of ephemeral
0: swamps and and wetlands. So, um, really interesting life history, I think one thing about them that that's that was kind of s- stuck out to me uh, i've done some work with uh, looking at the impacts of urbanization on pond turtles in california uh and you've done some work that the eastern longnecks seem to come into contact with people a lot in high urban centers yeah uh, so
2: yeah so we we have a lot of um uh sort of we build water retention ponds when we build our urban environments to stop the sedimentation getting into the rivers and the turtles um, really uh, do well in those urban uh, sort of retention ponds. So they're they're really large lakes inside the city uh, bounds and uh, the turtles do really well in there and they do still do this cycle moving out and back in, but the difference is that they they tend to move straight from the permanent water to the swamps and back again uh, in the urban context. Whereas in a natural context, they spend a lot more time Sort of wandering around in the terrestrial environment, burying under leaf litter, etc. All well, in an urban environment, they don't do that. They tend to. I don't know just, if you um, can still high know, foot it, you know, to the to end. the swamp.
0: Whoa! Something happened then. Yeah, we're... did it disconnect? I think it's. Uh, it may be on my end. I'll, I'll fix it. One second. Sorry. Well.
2: was going so well let's we'll start that one again
0: yeah sorry about that i That's this, is, this is me uh i'll uh, i've got to connect to a different wi-fi yeah
1: well
2: i live in the country so
1: um i'm using starlink your connection is like surprisingly good now so better than most of our other guests we've had on okay hello
0: hello hello guinea all right uh it sounds good you're frozen for me everyone's frozen for me but it's it's definitely my end one second
2: he's not frozen for us though
0: i can say you guys are good yeah, yeah good
2: it's to me. see you've got pants on there That's a... <laughs>
0: okay there we go we we should be good now all right i'll ask that question again (laughs) all right uh there it was good up until talking about yeah okay we'll, we'll just restart the whole question that works okay so in in terms of something that kind of stands out to me with the eastern longnecks it's interesting is uh they seem to inhabit or come into contact with people Fairly frequently in urban centers, and, and can and can even sort of thrive in those areas. But you've done some work with that. I'm curious what you found there. Yeah. So we we have a lot of urban wetlands that are built as um,
2: retention ponds when we build our suburbs, so that the sediment doesn't get into the rivers. And those retention ponds are like um, urban lakes, and the turtles love those urban lakes. So they they get in there and they um, they do really well. They still. Undergo that sort of cycle of moving out into ephemeral waters, but in the suburbs they tend to move directly from the permanent water out into the swamp and and then back again. Whereas in a natural situation they spend a lot more time on land, sort of estivating under leaf litter and and uh, in logs and various other things that are unavailable to them in the urban environment. Uh, so their behaviour is adapted, but they do really well in that that situation. The, the other thing is that in, in the urban situation, they come into contact with cars and it's a terrible thing, uh, the number that get killed on the roads in Australia. So when it rains um, and then the sun comes out, they all move and they're moving across the roads and, of course, they get, they get killed on the roads. So there's a lot of effort going into providing underpasses and various other avenues for the turtles to move through the urban environment, at least in Canberra uh where uh, whereby they don't uh, suffer that that terrible mortality so um yeah that's that's an issue uh the road mortality
0: right that's it's interesting i've seen a similar kind of trend with with pond turtles in california and road mortality being an issue uh some of the other it, it it's always this is kind of always the question i i think a lot of ecologists get with turtles is what is the worst Worst stressor that they're facing, and that's kind of it. Can be a hard question to answer with respect to the eastern long-neck turtle in particular. Is there a threat, or is road mortality the worst threat, sort of facing that turtle, or is there something else, or is it even possible to rank the worst situations for those turtles?
2: Well, we we just wrote an article on this for Austral Ecology. It'll be out uh, by October, I think. And in there we, we, we covered the threats against all the species in Australia. And the Eastern long neck turtle, um, I, I guess the biggest threat for it is um, the loss of the ephemeral wetlands. So Australia is the driest vegetated continent on earth. So the, the total sum of water flowing out of our rivers is less than flows from the Missouri into the Mississippi. And, and so that's, that's one um, difference about Australia compared say with North America. The other thing is that the climate's really unpredictable. And, and so you have these long droughts, you have uh, incredible unpredictability and and these animals are moving and uh, adapted to that unpredictability, they're moving out in the ephemeral wetlands and of course we're changing the flows in our rivers so that the floodplains don't flood as often or they flood at the wrong time. Um, and so there's a massive loss of opportunity for these turtles. Uh, so I guess the habitat... Um, Habitat loss and, and, and the draining and uh, alteration of environmental flows is the biggest uh, threat to this species in terms of the reduction of of numbers over time. Now I'm not saying they're not abundant; they're still abundant, and there are there are counter counterbalancing influences. So the proliferation of farm dams across the landscape has benefited this species. So there are sort of counterbalancing influences, but they're nowhere near as abundant as they used to be. Where hundreds and hundreds of them used to cross the Princess Highway um, every time it sort of rained uh, and, and often seasonally rather than um, once every few years. And that no longer happens. I mean, they, they, they don't cross the Princess Highway in hundreds anymore. So, so their numbers have uh, declined dramatically from what they used to be, but they're still uh, quite abundant uh, within their range.
0: Right. It's some level of conservation is trying to keep the common species common. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's uh, interesting to quantify what are the biggest threats towards that species to try to devote efforts to the thing that's most necessary, right? That's kind of the goal. Yeah. And it, something else that, that sort of has plagued that turtle and, and potentially some other species is salinization of water bodies due to altered hydrology and such. Maybe you could talk a little to that and what causes that, and what what are the issues for turtles? Mm. So,
2: salinization is a big problem in Australia um, because there's a large amount of salt in the uh, sort of um, below the surface in Australia, uh, in particular areas that used to were once inland seas. Um, So, there's a large amount of salt, and our land use practices and the changes in land use practice have often drawn that salt to the surface. And that causes a lot of problems for agriculture, but it also causes uh, massive problems for uh, the freshwater biota. Now, the eastern long neck turtle, I guess, is perhaps more adapted than other species to salinisation. Uh, they do live in brackish waters, and um, you know, so basically, they're they're more tolerant than a lot of other species. Uh, the other snake neck turtle in um, in in the Murray Darling, it it. Um, it's not as tolerant to salt, salt water, but it, it has all these behaviours. So when it rains, the, the fresh water sits on top of the salt water and they drink that, and then they don't drink when they're in the, in the brackish water. So they've got all these different ways of adapting to uh, salinity, uh, which is a feature of our, our landscape. Um, one of the things that happened with the long neck turtle down at Lake Alexander at the mouth of the Murray is that the habitat became very um, brackish and marine species moved into that area and a tube worm in particular started to colonize the turtle's shells and built up um, an incredible crust on the turtle shells to the point where there are just little holes where the feet came out and a little hole in a, where the, um, the head comes out and the turtles could hardly move. Uh, so you know, that, that would obviously cause mortality. Uh, it's a, a sort of an unusual situation where the salinization of the, of the habitat brought in another species which then uh you know encrusted the turtle shells and uh le- led to uh mortality so um so it's sort of you know a, a bit of a surprise that one
0: it's, it's interesting that that it was so much of a sort of influence that it led to a comp- the ecosystem change to some respect yeah, that's yeah. It's, it's it's almost it reminds sort of it's a different situation. It's not this isn't natural, and it seems like it's exacerbated by agriculture and and sort of leaching of salt into different systems. Uh, but kind of the diamondback terrapins in the United States naturally occur in in salt water. Uh, but it it seems like the long neck turtles, uh, kelids, are fairly adaptable. I mean, what what level of salinity are are we talking about and is anything known about how they sort of control uh blood osmolality that sort of thing
2: yeah so um a former student of mine uh, deborah bauer who's now at uh, university in new england um did some work on on salinity tolerances and uh others have as well and i think basically the advantage they have is they're reptiles and so their skin's pretty impermeable they're not like frogs yeah you know, you're change the salinity and you'll knock frogs out pretty quickly well with turtles they're basically reptiles that have impermeable skin living in water and so the ones that are affected by the salinity most dramatically are the ones that breathe through their bums so the ones that have those cloacal gills and ventilate their their cloaca are they're dramatically affected by salinity so if you if you give a rheodites a salinity bath to get rid of some fungal disease or something you'll kill it um, whereas species like longercolas they just shut their little placards and they don't don't open their mouths and uh, they swim around and, and feed and go on uh, and they're quite tolerant of the amount of salt that they do have to take in um, and of course then when they need to drink water uh, they can find access to fresh water either floating on top of this salt water when it rains or or getting out and moving to a, a femoral pool that's not saline, so so they have their ways of coping with salt. That's both um, physiological and behavioral.
0: Okay, yeah, that that yeah, that turtles do seem to be fairly robust to it. Like you said, with the the skin impermeability, that's seems like it's a sort of a huge thing yeah. uh, for for helping them there. I sort of it, it it brings to mind that this other idea that. Kind of effects of climate change um on on turtles eastern longnecks and australian turtles in general um uh, you've done a lot of work looking kind of how that on different aspects of bio the turtle biology that could be impacted by climate change curious what you think the worst impacts of climate change if, if turtles are adaptable enough to deal with the sort of uh prospective impacts of it
2: Yeah, i think the biggest issue for australian turtles is possibly not um present in, in areas that are wetter is uh, there's, there's two aspects to it australia is sitting bang smack in the middle of a tectonic plate and so there hasn't been much change uh to the river systems they've been there for a long long time and so what what happens is as as the uh continent became more arid you get Restriction of some species down to single drainages where they've been sitting there for a long time. Um, and, and I guess they're particularly vulnerable to climate change, rapid climate change, because they've got nowhere to go. So they can't, so they don't have a, a distribution that's spread across a multiple drainages where they blink out in some, they reinvade others, and they've got a, a bunch of drainages where, where they can persist long enough to be able to accommodate the climate change. We've got a lot of species that are found in single drainages, and so if the climate changes dramatically, um, and the rivers dry up where they didn't, the water gets hotter where it didn't, then uh, before then, basically they'll blink out. So, so climate change um, is an issue if we don't actively manage it in the context of some of these endangered species. So, pseudomadurian brina, for example, like um, it used to be widespread in Australia in the Pleistocene, so. They've got fossils of it up in Riversley, up in the Gulf country. It's now restricted by the progressive aridification of Australia uh, down to the southwestern corner. Now, if if it's got nowhere to go. If the climate changes dramatically and its winter, wet, summer, dry swamps disappear, it's got nowhere to go apart from becoming extinct. And so what do we do? We, we have to be very inventive about Uh, thinking about where this animal could live if only it could get there and help it get there. Um, It's really crying out for some serious intervention uh, in in that sort of case where you've got something that's been isolated to very small range and then you've got climate change, rapid climate change coming in over the top of it. It's got nowhere to go but become extinct unless we intervene. Look around the continent for areas where it could really thrive. And assist it to get there. Now that's very controversial, but um, in my view, that's something that's really necessary. Um, and and of course, the paleo data, you know, the, the environments that the species used to occupy uh, up at Riversley uh, give you some insight as to what might be suitable uh, for translocation of this species should uh, the southwest corner of Western Australia become unsuitable.
0: Right. It's sort of case specific. Uh, and mm. just to play sort of devil's advocate, may, maybe not even that much, but to kind of propose the, the the opposing side to species translocations or creating new habitats sort of in the wake of climate change to, to house those animals, which is, I think, what you're sort of getting at. Um, what What is – I think a lot of people would say, well, they're not – contributing overall if if we lose one species of turtle it's not sort of a huge thing from a biodiversity perspective an ecosystem functionality perspective but what is that what is sort of your argument for why resources should be allocated to protecting individual turtle species and maybe just in general why should people care about turtles
2: yeah i guess uh, that's a that's an interesting question a lot of people are you know, totally focused on uh, the human species and its needs. And so when you talk about, you know, what services does a turtle provide? Well, you know, what services does a platypus provide? And yet we wouldn't want to see the platypus go extinct. But if it went extinct, I doubt that the the river systems of Australia would suddenly, the ecosystems would collapse. But So so we've got to, I think really it comes down to your philosophy as to whether, we're caretakers of uh, of the planet and of the species that are here, and that we um, and that we do sort of um, have a responsibility to ensure that these species don't go extinct. So that's that's sort of one one philosophical point of view. The other one is that um, I guess people don't realise that that all vertebrates are um, basically different experiments using the same genes and biochemical processes. And so you you never know what's going to spring out at you. So one of the best drugs for for, um, treating diabetes type 2 came from studies of saliva in the healer monster. Now, now, a few years ago, we would have said, oh, well, who cares if the healer monster goes extinct? But you'd never know what's going to come out of studies of these all these different little experiments with the same genes that we have that, that are driving our health and well-being. So even if you took a utilitarian point of view, you, you would still want to say, let's not let these species go extinct because they're a reservoir for opportunities to provide benefit uh, for human health. Um, look, we we share 30% of our genes with a carrot. <laughs> like and we share like ninety-nine percent of our genes with a chimpanzee and, and probably more than ninety percent with a with a turtle. So like like you know, the, the the dragon lizards I work on, we're working on the genes associated with sex determination in dragons. The mechanisms that determine sex in dragons that are influenced by temperature are the same meta, same pathways that cause human cancer. And the same inhibitors that they use to experiment on human cancer, we're using to experiment on sexing dragons. That's how, close, that's how close we are in terms of the fundamental underpinning biology of our systems. And so every time you lose a species, you're losing a, a, a little bit of the opportunity we have uh, to, to benefit ourselves in the future, even if you take that strict utilitarian sort of perspective. So you don't want them to go extinct.
0: It's, it's an interesting point. I think it's a, a sort of a great perspective. As Anders Rodin, we had him on uh, the podcast a while back, and he sort of said it was uh, kind of a moral imperative uh, to protect vertebrate life. And, and you kind of add this other uh, perspective from your sort of the molecular and genetic background uh, of, of it's also an information imperative to a certain extent, we're losing information about a system yeah, and that, that can be bad for us. Yeah, exactly. So I, I, I hold
2: the moral imperative view that Anders has, but I, I'm just trying to address the people who, who um, like I got rung up by a politician cold. I got a big grant to work on dragon lizards. I got rung up by a politician cold and said, why are we spending this money on dragon lizards? Why aren't we spending it on cystic fibrosis? right and so i had to answer that and and basically you know it was difficult to answer a cold call like that but basically i gave the sort of answer that i just that i just outlined to you
1: it's like a more it's kind of a more concrete like grounded in reality sort of like answer that sometimes you're, you're going to need a, a simple reason for why are we do what why is all of this justified
2: yeah exactly and it's got to be simple for a politician yeah and it's got to be utilitarian it's got to be like what's it mean to my constituency and and so it's not it's not enough just to argue the moral imperative because there's a relatively small uh proportion of the population that that think that way um and so you need to you need to have answers for the broader uh elements of the community that are totally utilitarian so
0: Right. The information aspect of it is, is really fascinating. We, we had uh, Brad Schaefer on recently as well and, and talk sort of on, on your point with the Gila monster. Uh, he, he found something similar with the, the painted turtle genome, the uh, SLC2A1 gene and, and potential that has for diabetes therapeutics and, and such. And so that's just another example going towards your point in, in terms of uh, there all biodiversity is important. That, that's kind of the utilitarian perspective, yeah. but it's, it's necessary when arguing it.
2: Yeah. I mean, if you're going to get into that sort of stuff, so I guess the aging, um, like aging is a big thing. The, the one thing that billionaires can't do is extend their lives, right? They, we all die. And so there's great interest and a lot of money uh, being directed towards aging research. And who's living long? like <laughs> <Yuck>, turtles. <laughs> and so if we can work out the mechanisms by which turtles um have such I- incredibly long lives uh that might have give us some insight as to what we would need to manipulate uh to extend human lifespan so it's it's that's a sort of that's a sort of utilitarian sort of uh perspective that that can be can be important um i i think so and and can deliver the goods um so there are a lot of species that don't have cancer at all um, and and turtles aren't among them, but there are a lot of species that don't have cancer at all. And by studying those species and studying how their genes interact and the same genes as in us, how their genes interact to work out how come they don't have cancer and we do, it, it, you know, it's a big thing. So you, you'll see um, organisations like SciLife Labs in Sweden. It's a medical-oriented organisation, but you'll see now it's biomedicine and biodiversity. That they're that they're studying, you know, it, why why is the Wellcome um, Sanger Institute so interested in in sequencing the genomes of all um, life in in Great Britain? They're interested in this because of the payoffs that come from better understanding of the genomics of life, of which we're part. And so you don't you don't want to be destroying your biodiversity um, willy nilly without an appreciation of what you're actually losing in terms of opportunity.
0: Right. And, and so going back to something you mentioned early on, uh, uh, in terms of studying the, the sort of sex determining mechanisms in, in uh, Pagona and, and turtles as well, uh, we can sort of get into that. I think that's a really fascinating area of work you've done quite a bit of research in. Uh, and, and I think a lot of people are familiar with the kind of high school biology conception of mammalian sex and meiosis, and it's very sort of the same thing conserved across mammals, and, and it's, uh, it's kind of a, a, a streamlined process that we learn about. But once you get outside of the, the mammalian classification, things become a lot more complex, and you get genetic sex determination, environmental determination, and all sorts of variations within that. Uh, Maybe you could give us a background, give people a background on how variable sex determination is outside of mammals and and why it's particularly interesting in turtles.
2: Yeah, so I guess the uh, mammals are the odd man out um, in many ways. So first of all, they have a fairly conserved... Um, sex-determining system. Yeah, you know, we've got XXXY chromosomes. The, the males have the XY. Uh, so they determine the sex of the offspring in the sense that the offspring that get the Y from the male uh, are males and the ones that don't are females. So it's a fairly um, relatively simple uh, system that's uh, portrayed in the textbooks. The, the mammals have their own um, variability. So there's, there are some animals that... Don't have a Y chromosome; they've only got an X chromosome, um, and there are others that have uh, multiple SRY genes on their on sex chromosomes. So, yeah, you know, they've got multiple SRY genes, which, um, uh, you know, some of which have been co-opted for other purposes. So, like it's it's not it's not completely simple in the mammals, and there's a, a lot of work yet to be done to understand that. But in the reptiles. You know, there's a remarkable diversity. So we got parthenogens, uh, you know, species that that uh, that produce um, only only females. There's no males involved, and they perpetuate through parthenogenesis. That can be facultative parthenogenesis. So if you take a big sort of branded and you put a female in isolation uh, on an island, for example, then they'll uh, they'll throw. Uh, offspring with, in the absence of a male, some of their offspring will be male, so they can perpetuate themselves um, in that way. And others that's just been found are actually pathogenic inside the um, uh, inside one clutch. So some of them are parthenous, some of them are sexual. So you've got that pathogenesis side to it. Then you've got TSD, which was discovered 50 years ago in the dragon lizard in Africa. You've got TSD. Uh, where temperature determines the sex, and there's no sex chromosomes at all, and, and that's really um, uh, been shown to be widespread in turtles. Uh, not, so, not, in, not in Australian keylands, uh but widespread in, in, in many uh, different groups of turtles. Uh, and that that was um, met with disbelief when it was first came to the, the attention of science. Uh, but now it's well well entrenched. But the fundamental understanding of how that works has eluded us for that, that 50 years. And it's only recently that we started to get insights into how that works. And then you've got species that have sex chromosomes, just like us or like birds, um, and temperature comes in and diverts the pathway. And that's what our dragon lizard does. So it, it's got um, ZZZW chromosomes like birds temperature comes in over the top and reverses the sex of the, uh, of the ZZ animals to become females. So so the males uh, get reversed into female phenotype by temperature. So you've got uh, really a spectrum of um, uh, different possibilities going from TSD at one end where there's no underlying genetic predisposition to GSD at the other end where you've got sex chromosomes and then you've got sort of intermediate... Um, Forms where you've got the interaction between genes and environment to determine sex, uh, which is, I think, we haven't looked properly. I think when we look, we'll find that that's much more common than than the endpoints of pure TSD and pure GSD.
0: So it's a, it's a very fertile uh, field for research. Right. It's easy enough to sort of take those the terms and, and, and kind of label those systems as such and, and kind of pass it on pass over that, but so much to think about when you actually think about the fact that some organisms don't have sex chromosomes and the temperature is toggling with something at some point in incubation, most turtles that is, is sort of turning the, is, is the, uh, developing the sex organs. Uh, that's kind of a fascinating thing thing to think think about. And And it requires a lot of cutting-edge technology, and, and you've dealt yeah, with well, it. Yeah, yeah well, it frustrated, it's frustrated
2: uh, science for a long time because, it, like you say, it, it, it's something that gets toggled by temperature, but it could have been anything. So it, it could be basically um, a gene that affects the passage of an effector molecule across the nuclear membrane, some really subtle thing that's affected by temperature that changes the sex. So so, so you don't know where to look, and it, it could be anywhere. And and what's happened recently, though, through the work of uh, Blanche Capel and, and through our lab, uh, is that it now appears that there's some really ancient mechanisms of um, gene expression machinery, really ancient mechanisms of gene expression machinery that are involved in giving temperature its effect. And so basically what happens is you've got these... You've got these um, genes that govern whether the chromosome opens up for expression or shuts down. So not all genes in your cells are expressed at all times. So what happens is that some of them are expressed. The chromatin unfolds and allows the machinery to get into express that gene. And the genes that affect that unfolding and folding are temperature sensitive. And so basically, the, the temperature is affecting. Um, the expression of, of genes by making them available or unavailable are uh, for expression which determines the sex. And so it, this, is, this is a mechanism that's really ancient that, that goes you know, way back to yeast. And, and what we found is that there are some intron retention events in, in, in mutations in those genes that are very specific and are found in turtles, crocodiles and dragon lizards. So, so they're very specific mutations in those genes that are ancient and have been maintained for 300 million years, right? And so they've, they've got to have some really specific function. And so we've been looking very carefully at, at that function in terms of how, how it, it determines sex. And Blanche Capel's lab's been working on the same thing in the turtle. We're working in the dragon, which is a, a sex reversal scenario. She's working in the turtle, which is a TSD scenario and we're both uh, converging on the same uh, sort of mechanisms that are involved in, in sex determination. So you can get your teeth into this because once you identify the mechanism, and if it's common, uh, then you can get your teeth into it. Whereas before, it could have been almost anything that was doing it, and, and you, it was intractable. So, so it's a, a big advance in the last um, three or four years in terms of the direction uh, research is taking to, to unravel how temperature influences sex in turtles.
0: It's sort of a restructuring of the genome, almost, and temperature can intrinsically influence kind of the chromatin fibers that control a lot of that structure, and then that leads to differential expression, and that differential expression at a cellular level, or sort of the nucleus, at a nuclear level, how does that translate to the sort of development of each sex what are the, the the protein pathways and and the the transduction pathways leading to that is that known or yeah so the pathways um,
2: that dictates sexual differentiation that is the differentiation of the testes and ovary are fairly conserved and fairly well known so basically if you look at a testes in a um, a rat, or a testes in a human, or a testes in a turtle, or a testes in a lizard—they're very similar in structure, and so you'd expect that those gene pathways are fairly well defined and very canalized. So the pathways that actually result in the differentiation of the of the gonads are um, conserved and are fairly well known. But at the top of the at the top of that sort of cascade, a decision is made. Am I going to be a boy or am I going to be a girl? And it's that decision, um, the sex determination mechanism that's really poorly known. And so in in mammals, the SRY gene on the Y uh, triggers a, a cascade that leads to a testes. In the absence of SRY, the cascade produces an ovary. So we know it's SRY in the mammals. No... Sex-determining gene has yet been discovered in a turtle, or in, in, indeed in any reptile uh, that's been act- actually demonstrated. There's some good candidates, but none's been demonstrated uh, in, in reptiles. And of course, it's it's complicated by this this temperature influence. And how does that how does that influence that upper decision-making process? Uh, is is
0: like is is the interesting story I think. And this sort of falls in the the realm of epigenetic control. Is that is that the right way to think about?
2: Yeah, temp- temperature-dependent sex determination is epigenetic by definition, right? Because what you're saying is that there's an influence that's outside the genome. Um, so it's epigenetic by by definition. Um, so we're talking about epigenetic processes that lead to the expression or non-expression of a key sex gene like DMRT1.
0: That's that's what you're talking about. So epigenetic processes by by definition yeah from from an evolutionary perspective why is why would temperature dependent sex determination be something beneficial why why would that evolve
2: yeah well i mean that that's a that's a really interesting question um uh and i guess turtles you know create a confounding because they're so long-lived that the you know Sex determination in the nest of a single nest in a species that's going to be breeding for sixty years and laying three or four clutches a year in some cases, like you know, you know, how how does that matter uh, so much? I guess so. um, But but there are short-lived species like dragon lizards um, and and perhaps some um, turtles where the um, I guess the there's an advantage to being male under some circumstances. There's an advantage to being female under other circumstances in the in the nest, and they can't be predicted by the mother at the time she lays the nest, uh, and so the decision on what sex they're going to be is deferred uh, until such time as the information is known as to whether it's going to favour males or females, and then that decision is made by temperature, which is um, uh, directly correlated to the fitness benefit uh, that... that That is afforded to either male or female. So this is the Bull Charnov model. Um, So basically, they defer the decision about making uh, boys or girls until the information is available within the nest as to whether the advantage is going to be accrued by males um, or by females, and then the decision is made at that point. So and it's made by temperature. So so for example, if um, if 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 you're laying multiple clutches in the year, the later clutches are going to hit winter before the earlier clutches. So the ones that, lo- that come out earlier are going to have a growth spurt before they enter winter. The ones that come out later are not. And if, if there's an advantage of being large if you're a female and not so much an advantage of being large if you're a male, then, then obviously if you lay your nest early in the season, it's better to produce females because it's going to get that initial growth spurt and the ones that are, la- are laid later it's better to be miles because they don't need that growth spurt so you can see that there could be a selective advantage to it uh, th- i think um it's really uh, difficult to get in your teeth into these scenarios in an experimental way and uh one of one of the results of our work has shown that you can get sex reversal uh by uh climate change without any selective advantage at all it's just basically frequency-dependent selection that drives the transition, Uh, you don't need to invoke any selective advantage um, one way or the other to evolve uh, from GSD to TSD. It just happens because of the overproduction of one sex through sex reversal leading to uh, driving down of the the sex chromosome uh, through frequency-dependent selection and ultimately the loss of the sex chromosome and you move to TSD, and that all happens uh, simply because of that frequency-dependent selection. You don't need to invoke uh, selective advantage to drive that process, and under conventional selection. And uh, but once, of course, it moves to TSD, then conventional selection locks in to maintain it. So, so the question becomes: you know, what what selective processes maintain TSD once it occurs? Rather than what are the selective processes that drive the transition? So that that, that appeared in uh, an article in uh, Vows in Nature in 2015, if you want to look that up.
0: Yeah, it's it just in terms of a question for overall biodiversity, it's fascinating. It, and to think about why it, it, it seems to make sense why there'd be an advantage to offset the determining factor and maybe even. I'm curious what your thoughts about this are, but it doesn't seem like in every case an even sex ratio in populations is beneficial. There may be times when resources demand more females and males or or vice versa, and maybe that could be something that temperature is sort of modulating.
2: I, I, yeah. yeah, it could be. I mean, selection operates on the individual, um, so you've got to think, you know, what's the advantage of the individual so it might be an advantage to a population to have more females because the effective population size is larger as a result. Because you don't you don't need even sex ratio to perpetuate if the males are mating with multiple females. So, you know, why do you need a 50-50 sex ratio? But but you've got to look at the individual and what what selective advantage is there. And, and that tends to lead to a one is the one sex ratio over time, uh, because the the animals that produce more of the rarest sex have an advantage over, in terms of the number of grandchildren, over the ones that produce more of the common sex. And so you get this selective advantage that quickly drives the system towards one is to one. But there's a caveat on that. When, when the environmental conditions that determine the sex are, the, are also influencing offspring survivorship, then the uh, one is to one is no longer the sex ratio. It's optimal. So, the sex ratio can be quite different from one is to one when the in, environmental factor that's influencing sex also influences um, offspring fitness in other ways. It shifts from one is to one to something else. And so, so expecting one is to one in reptiles with TSD is, is not, not really a sensible null hypothesis um, if temperature is also affecting um, offspring fitness in other ways. So, you have to, yeah, you, you, know, you have to qualify it. There's not much in the literature on that. I think James Bull um, pointed that out in some of his early papers on sex determination, but no one's really picked up on that
0: uh, since. Yeah, it's something you pointed out too that's interesting about it is with the sex reversal and, and sort of the evolution of genetic sex determination and switching between environmental sex determination, that there's almost sort of inherent, the idea there is that one can come from the other and, and you've seen this occur fairly rapidly. And so if you just have that frequency dependent selection, that, that transition could be something in the system that's kind of inherent and that sort of rapid turnover, maybe it's just an adaptable response to different conditions. Um, yeah, so in mammals, um, because they've had the sex determining
2: system for so long, uh, you can't do without your why, right? You can't produce spermatozoa without a why. Um, it's, it's, it's basically it's locked in because of millions of years of refinement. And in reptiles, that's not the case. And one should ask, well, why isn't that the case? And, and one of the reasons why is that I think temperature dependent sex determination, TSD, is a disruptor in an evolutionary context. So, you've had this turnover and it's self-reinforcing because there hasn't been time for any lineage to evolve, to lock down the necessity of having a Y chromosome. And, and you've got a lot of species of homomorphic sex chromosomes so the sex chromosomes haven't differentiated and they haven't locked down because they haven't had time to lock down because you've got this evolutionary churn that's been going on with uh, with TSD coming into the equation. I think, I think that's a really interesting sort of thing that could be developed um, more in, in the literature, that, that idea of uh, TSD being a disruptor um, and leading to um, main, maintenance of the diversity of sex-determining uh, mechanisms in reptiles. Now, you might have snakes, for example, that, you know, if you separate the pythons out, snakes tend to have ZW chromosomes like, like birds, highly conserved. You know, maybe they have lockdown. Yeah, you know, so you know, maybe some lineages of reptiles have locked down into a particular type of uh, genotypic sex
0: determination, uh, but reptiles as a whole haven't. It's and and so with regard to sort of the temperature-dependent sex determination, you've looked at sort of how that works, the dynamics of that in loggerheads and other turtles, and something that i found fascinating with that is a lot of the early studies that looked at sort of classifying if if, if it was tsd or gsd in a species were uh, more sort of empirical and lab based and and you've sort of looked at this in the, in the wild and, and something that's inherent in natural systems is some level of temperature variation and variability it's not always going to be a constant temperature exposure and you've seen that It's more a function of the amount of development that is occurring at a certain temperature than it is that constant exposure. Maybe you can speak to how variability in temperature influences sex ratios of turtles that are RTSD.
2: Yeah, so I guess the, um, like, most of the early experiments were done at constant temperatures. And so you do the constant temperatures and you show that you get 100% males at one end, you get 100% females at the other end of the spectrum and you get mixed sexes in a very narrow range and so it's natural just to translate that into trying to interpret what happens in in nature but in the in the natural nests, the temperatures are all over the place so they go up and down each day so in pig-nosed turtles they, they'll drop down as low as 18 degrees and they'll go up as high as 45 degrees and so they're going up and down um, and you get rainfall events you get all sorts of Impacts on the temperatures in, in those nests is quite complicated. And I think um, one, one of the um, advances that I made early in the piece was to show that it wasn't just the mean temperature that was influencing sex, but also the variability. And in fact, I was able to show that you could switch from 100% males to 100% females, not by changing the mean temperature, you keep that constant, say at 26 degrees but you could flip the sex from 100% male to 100% female just by changing the amount of fluctuations around that mean. And so it's both the mean and the variance in temperature that determines sex. And then the, um, I, guess, I guess I should add that the the, the way I uh, got into this, and it, it's sort of interesting. I, I decided to become a scientist at 14 when I read some of Isaac Asimov's um, factual books, and he talked about, the milestones in scientific life which is normally a drudgery most of the time and one of them is it's that funny moment you know you, you go you, you're looking at something you go oh that's funny and then because it doesn't fit with you with your understanding and so graham webb did the experiments on the big nose turtle showing that they had temperature dependent sex determination he characterized with constant temperatures you know exactly how it worked i went out into the field started measuring the temperatures in the nest and found that the temperature that was the pivot point was one and a half degrees different from the temperature he found in the lab. And I went, that's funny. And, and, of course, I trusted his work impeccably. He's an outstanding scientist in terms of being meticulous. So I trusted his lab work. I trusted my own work. So 1.5 degrees. Mm-hmm. What, why was that? And it turns out it's it's because of the fluctuations in the nest in addition to the mean. And then, then I, I, I worked out uh, using calculus and other things how, how to characterize that mathematically. And then I had really good precise expectations in my experiments and I could do my experiments on loggerhead turtle to show that those expectations were indeed met. And I could um, show quite clearly that the fluctuations um, dictated uh sex determination and i could say why because i understood the mathematics so i could say why it was and it's because an animal spends more of its life above its mean temperature than below its mean temperature if you're a reptile so when you're hot your growth and metabolism is going like the clappers and when you're cold you slow right down and so you spend more of your life above the mean temperature than below it and so above the mean temperature has much greater influence on your sex ratio as an embryo than below it. And the mathematics sort of encapsulates that and makes some really precise uh, predictions that enable you to take the lab work and translate that into field work. So, th- so that was sort of early, early in the piece of my career that, that I sort of did that work. I'm still excited about it because it was at that funny moment, which doesn't happen very often. And, and I could have dismissed that one and a half degrees as just, you know, errors. But it was a that funny moment, and it persisted, you know, until I thought, well, it's that that's funny, and then the next moment is, oh, I know why. So there are a couple of really bright moments in a scientist's life. It's that funny moment, and then there's a realization of why, and all the rest is drudgery, <laughs> like just hard work.
0: But you, you're sustained by those those little moments in your life.
2: Hmm.
0: In, uh, in one of my past calculus classes, we had to tr- brainstorm areas where you'd use different methods of integration. And I, 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 if I had known about, well, I did know about it, but I I wasn't thinking about it, but it's, it's admirable that you use trigonometric integration to solve that question. I just thought that was, it's cool to see because a lot of times people sort of pass that that whole sort of area of, of science and, and mathematics off is kind of something that's not useful much, but you used it to answer a question related to sort of how development is, is related to fluctuation. Right. And, and it's, yeah. it's cool. It was cool to see.
2: Yeah. So, so my undergraduate degrees in pure maths, right. So like I, I wandered off, I, I saw turtles as this esoteric little hobby and I did the maths And and then, um, you I went up to Managrida with Harry Messel and Graham Webb, working on crocodiles, and I realised there's another side to life and that you could actually study your passion. And so I finished the maths degree and then did extra uh, undergraduate work in zoology and then did my PhD in zoology. But, you know, I still had the maths and the understanding of calculus. And so it it was an obvious thing to do. Um, and, And nowadays, of course, you don't need calculus. You've got this computational power just to uh, just to iteratively sum across the uh, temperature traces to get you to get your answers. But back then, uh,
0: basically um, analytical approaches were the way to go. Right. It, would would there be? So you mentioned one of the limitations of what you did is that you couldn't incorporate sort of random fluctuations and years where you had a lot of a rain and random sort of the 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 ends of the spectrum of stochastic events into the model you think that's something now you could do with more complex algorithms
2: it's it's challenging so what 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 the um, model does is it says that if you give it if you take a given day and you look at the temperature cycle you can say what if, if that day was perpetuated across a whole uh thermosensitive period what sex you'd get that when you, when you have variability through the thermosensitive period, so you've got a certain regime at the beginning, then you've got a rainfall event, then you know the temperature's warming through the season all of that, uh, the model doesn't really uh, address that. Uh, the, the way to address that is to um, look at the contribution of each day to a particular sex across the thermosensitive period and then um, match that with the sexual outcomes and then try and come up with some sort of, Correlative relationship is as, as to what your expectation would be based on a trace. It's it's sort of it's not it's not as satisfying as um, as as the mathematics that apply to a, a single day. But it, it can be done. Uh, but don't you can't apply the model as some people have done across the whole thermosensitive period and try and predict the sex. You've got to apply it each day. Do a trend on on the um, likely sex influence. Uh, across the whole thermosensitive period and then and then make your judgment because if if across the whole thermosensitive period it's all up in the female domain you're going to get females it's all in the male domain you're going to get males but if it crosses over halfway through the thermosensitive period you know well who knows <laughs> that's the problem
0: and that hasn't been solved yeah that that's sort of an open question with more complicated algorithms and yeah, and, and someone,
2: someone's going to solve it. I mean, it just, needs, it just needs to work where you've got a lot of nests, you've got a lot of temperature traces, make sure you've got the probes at the top, bottom and middle of the nests and you've got a lot of nests, you know, know what the sexual outcome was and, you know, you can, you, can, um, you can work through that but it hasn't been done satisfactorily yet. I mean, I've tried to do it with a pig-nosed turtle and I have a paper that that uh, is ready for submission that, that does that um
0: but but uh, I haven't submitted it yet is there some way I, I I've done some work with Bayesian modeling and such and, and just curious what you think if there'd be a way to incorporate that into that sort of uh, iterative trigonometric modeling I...
2: yeah I think it lends itself to that um so Bayesian modeling um, so you've got you've got the you know, the standard probability that, probability that people use in T-tests and that. And then you've got maximum likelihood. And then you've got the Bayesian modelling where you can feed in priors. Um, so based on, you know, your previous um, data that's collected to that point, you can set up some priors and feed that into your model, to get better predictions. And so uh, it certainly lends itself to that in the same way as the original application of Firing a can at a target and in a war, and finding you miss by a certain amount, and then you feed that back into the Bayesian modeling, adjust it, fire again, miss by a certain amount, feed it back in until you get better and better at uh, hitting your target. So that that sort of analysis um, is uh, most appropriate for, for, for that question. Yeah, definitely.
0: Yeah, some way to incorporate some level of the stochasticity that. In temperature over a season, maybe there's some way to attach a statistical level to the the uh, sort of linear aspect and the the trigonometric aspect to it. Yeah, be- yeah, <laughs> yeah. It
2: needs needs a young mind. <laughs> it needs a young mind. I I turned seventy this year, so uh, yeah, it definitely needs a young mind to look at it because you know you, you, your mass security disappears uh, over uh, with age. So
0: well that's it's it's something that the listeners and and anyone that's interested in that sort of thing it's an open question in terms of looking at how yeah, seasonal variability influences the models that exist for determining kind of how the variation in temperature influences sex that's that's something there um so the, another thing too that you mentioned the pig turtles that's a really fascinating one and, and you've got field experience with those curious uh just, what are some of the experiences you've had with them? Maybe in, uh, I know you've worked in the Kakori region of uh, New Guinea, and, and I'm sure you've had some adventures there.
2: Yeah. So, um, yeah. So basically, the pig nosed is are an iconic species for, for um, obviously for Western uh, communities in the sense it's the last remaining member of its um, family. And so you know, it, it's it's uh, conservation is the priority is high uh, in the Kakori. It, it's an iconic species because um, it, it's 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 treated like a fishery, right? So they, the the meat and the eggs are highly valued by the local community, and they're an important uh, component of the subsistence environment. So so both. From a conservation point of view, we don't want to see it go extinct and from a fisheries point of view, you don't want to see it go extinct. So we, we were working with the support of Oil Search and uh, ExxonMobil. Uh, we were working to um, with the local community to uh, assist them in, in terms of uh, sustainability of the environment overall using the uh, iconic Pignose uh, turtle as a sort of an umbrella species. Uh, a lot of interest in it, in the community, marshal that interest to try and uh, engender um, some urgency about ensuring that their environment uh, is sustainable into the future. Uh, and also just um, conveying that that concept of sustainability uh, to people who are living hand to mouth with a, a four-day focus on whether they're going to be able to feed their kids. So like it it was a really interesting project. It involved a lot of community education, uh, community capacity building. It involved a lot of learning uh, about what the community's perspectives were and what they wanted. Uh, And then being able to bring science to the table so that they can make their decisions about achieving what they wanted with the best available information at hand. So it's a really interesting project and it hasn't finished, it's still going. There's a team of people up there, uh, still working on on this, uh, with with the support of a broader base of funding agencies now. So um, it's great. It was great stuff.
0: Do you think uh, that that it, that species can be sustainably harvested for subsistence purposes? Is that something?
2: Um, I mean, the the we were fortunate that Mark Rose. Um, was doing a PhD project up there in the 80s, and that he um, he gathered information on the number of eggs that passed through the markets, the number number of turtles that went through the markets, and he took three villages and he monitored the number of eggs consumed, and the number of turtles consumed in those uh, three villages over a couple of years. So he had a good baseline data, um, which he, he he kindly provided us, and then we went and. Rep- rep- Repeated that uh, twenty years later, and we we showed that the population um, had declined by uh, about fifty-two percent. Uh, so, uh, so up until that point, the community didn't accept that they they thought that the turtles had been put there, you know, by the grace of their ancestors to use, and that they could use it in perpetuity. The old people were saying. There used to be a lot more turtles around. It's like me saying to my grandchildren, Times were better when I was your age. You know, they just dismissed it. Uh, by engaging the community in these surveys, they can actually see for themselves that the turtles had declined. It gave credibility to the old people that were saying there used to be a lot more eggs, there used to be a lot more turtles. And so the community then um became aware that they had a problem. And, and that was a big achievement, I think. Uh, just, just uh, convincing the community that there was actually a problem, and that they needed to address it. Uh, so, um, yeah. So, yeah. Sustain the sustainability message was was, was a, ch- a challenge. Um, but I don't know I've probably lost the thread of the, uh, the question here. So maybe maybe I'll just stop there on this question.
0: Yeah, that's, I mean, it, 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 sort of makes sense. If you, It's a question of, I think a lot of people, obviously they're, that's an area that isn't, uh, there's not a lot of income there. So harvesting turtles is important to just keep the population healthy. And if you can't provide an uh, alternative livelihood, people morally want to change, but why there's sort of no incentive yeah. to do that.
2: Well, well, it's cultural. Um, so they, so if you provide uh, a lot of resources, so so if you provide a lot of um, funding for petrol and boats and things like that, then um, then they'll more effectively harvest those turtles. So so one person can flip, you know, twenty turtles over on a on a nesting beach. Uh, you know, one person can harvest, you know, twenty animals, pile them into a boat, take them back to a village. So it, they're very effective at harvesting these things. So that. The fact that they're, they're becoming more affluent in a financial sense than in terms of money uh, means that they can afford boats, they can afford the fuel, and the cultural imperative to harvest these animals is still very high. So uh, I don't think that it's ever going to go away that they harvest these turtles. So, so I think one of the big... Um, areas where we have some hope is that different religions have different views over the turtles so the baptist religion in png uh, people who follow that religion won't eat the turtles or their eggs and so if you go to the tarama river the turtles are there present in in historical abundances and the nesting turtles it's phenomenal the nesting uh, of the turtles in the tarama river is phenomenal because the community doesn't harvest them and but in the Kakori they do harvest them and so you know they've dropped down like any fishery would it drops from the sort of pristine unharvested levels uh, down perhaps it could go down as far as 30 percent before a, a conventional fishery would become concerned right they expect the standing crop to drop when you institute a fishery so it's dropped down in the Kakori. But the good news is the turtles are moving right across the Gulf. And so you've got these patches where they're not being harvested that can feed through into the areas where they are being harvested. So there's, there's some hope that the patchy nature of this exploitation in, in PNG is, is um, leading to the sustainability in the long term of, of the species in, in that region. Uh, so that's a hope. Um, if ever it got where they were exporting, um, eggs and uh and meat as they do from sort of papua and indonesian papua uh then it brings in a whole new uh, raft of considerations uh that that need to be made but at this stage it's not the case in papua new guinea
0: Right. Okay. And yeah, it's it's interesting to think about that conservation perspective. Maybe we can sort of switch focus a bit uh, to something else that that you've done for for many years. Sort of looking at the phylogenetics of Australian kelids and turtles in general. Uh, this has kind of been a fascinating thing, and you've done you've got an interesting perspective that Dr. Schaefer also had uh, with respect to. Sort of global turtle phylogeny, and you've analyzed this the question uh, related to Australian chelids, how they're related in many different capacities over time, and so you've seen those relationships change with different analytical methods and such. Uh, but in your initial attempt to put together the the Australian turtle phylogenetic tree. What did you find? What were the things that were surprising to you? And how has your understanding of that tree changed with time? Yeah, so I think the, I think the most
2: uh, interesting uh, thing was that people had in the past, based on morphology, had grouped the long-necked turtles of South America with the long-necked turtles of Australia into a single clade. And I think with the molecular work, it was quite clear that that wasn't the case. That the Australian radiation uh, was it, um, is a single clade, and that the South American long-necked turtles are in, in, independently have independently derived uh, their long necks uh, in comparison with the Australian turtles. So, so the long-necked uh, Hydra medusa in South America and the long-necked Calodonta um, longicollis in Australia aren't, aren't aren't in the same clade. Uh, they've independently evolved their their long necks, or or they're The the long necks were ancestral, and they've in, independently retained them. So so that that was I think um, a really interesting result, and it 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 was borne out by Pritchard's um, studies of how the the shell forms to accommodate the longer neck, and and the shell in Hydra has accommodated an, anteriorly has accommodated a long neck in quite a different way from the Australian killer diner. Right. And, and so they are, um, The morphology supports their independent uh, evolution as well. If, if you look at Pritchard's data uh, and, and weigh it against the other morphological data that was provided. So, uh, so that was one, one result. I think the other result was that the, there were all these um, really deep uh, ancestral lineages in Australia. So Australia presumably had a really diverse fauna and then with the progressive aridification ader- erudification of Australia, then then uh, that's been maybe not lost, but probably as uh, elements of it lost, but it's certainly been contracted down uh, with species now occupying single drainages. And so, um, so finding out that the pet shop turtle, for example, which is only known from pet shops, wasn't a pet shop hybrid. But actually, a really distinct and ancestral lineage of Australian turtles, um, and this was done before it was fe- it was just dis- discovered um, to have come from the uh, Mary River by John Cann through his you know incredible in detective work, found that it was in the Mary River. But we'd already done the genetics and showed that it wasn't a pet shop hybrid; it was a really distinct and ancient lineage. And and the other uh, surprise I think that that came out of it was that um, Legler. Had, um my Achilles George's eye and my Achilles the same species <clears throat> and sensibly so because they're very similar uh, there are coloration differences the the sort of manning river turtles are brighter color uh, than the than the uh, most beautiful turtle in the world the my Achilles George's eye I've got to say um, but uh, anyway it colors not everything so um, basically the the, these were seen as the same species, but the genetics showed that, in fact, uh, they, they were ancient. And that, you know, Myakele's belly and Myakele's sternum have emerged from within that clade um, that between Myakele's purvis eye and Myakele's George's eye, right? So, so they're ancient. And, and the fact that they're so similar gives you a really rare insight into what they looked like, what the ancestor looked like. So they haven't changed over millions of years, they've given rise to Bell's turtle and to the common snapper, which has changed quite dramatically from them. but they haven't changed at all in, in that time. And so they represent the morphotype of the ancestor, which I think is really interesting because you get that, that glimpse into the past of what, of what this thing looked like way back then and then um, as the ancestor to latter and, and belli. So, yeah, it's quite an interesting uh, interesting thing that came out of it. Um, I guess then um, I've moved more to species delimitation um, <coughs> uh, and away from the phylogeny, though it, it's obvious that there's going to be some massive advances in phylogeny with the new genomics um, revolution that's going on, so we'll have Genomes for all these turtles in not too long, and be able to have a really good look from a whole genome point of view at their um, uh, at their evolution, and 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 the area that's opened up by that is the fact that we'll be able to look at structural variation in the genome, not just sequence variation, and structural variants. The shared inheritance of a structural variant that's really unusual, much more powerful than uh, just sequence variation. So, um, so I reckon there's going to be a revolution in our understanding of the phylogenetic history of the, of the, of turtles, um, uh, globally, uh, which, which will include the Australian ones, which I think will be really interesting. So uh, I'll move more to, uh, sort of species delimitation and looking, um, at the much more finer, uh, boundaries between uh, species of turtle and, uh, the paper on the, uh, Southern imagery that came out in, uh, 2018 is, uh, is the first of a series of papers that I'm hoping to produce uh, using uh, SNP markers, which are the same markers that Ancestry.com uses and uh, uh, 23andMe. So basically, we're DNA fingerprinting the turtles and looking at their fine-scale relationships across the landscape. So we're coming at it from a different direction. We're coming at it from the population genetics direction rather than from the phylogenetics direction. And the two meet, at some point um but because it, it's much more fine scale you, you've still got the process of speciation in in progress and so it's a much more fuzzier picture a lot harder to get your teeth into
0: right that that brings up something that's really interesting and it I, i'm curious about kind of how you articulate this someone asked me this question recently it's uh in, in, in my mind, it's there, but it's sort of hard for me to put into words in terms of what the difference between phylogenetics and population genetics is with respect to species delimitation in terms of the types of analyses you're using and, and, and that sort of thing.
2: Yeah, there's, there's, there's different camps. Um, so some, uh, some people have basically said that... Um, Uh, Lineage is a species. And so if you can demonstrate that uh, an entity, say a a population of turtles that's in a particular region is on an independent evolutionary trajectory, that is, it's a lineage, um, then that's a species. And so um, there are a lot of people that take that view. So they use phylogenetics to delimit species. because. The phylogenetics identifies these lineages, and then the lineages are species, um, and that that that's quite a common view. I think um, and it's not one I hold, but but it is a quite a common view. The second view is that uh, you can have lineages within species, <clears throat> and so species aren't just defined by phylogeny; they need to be defined um, under the biological species concept. So, so they're entities that are on independent evolutionary trajectories that don't just arise through geographic happenstance. They they derive because they're reproductively isolated, and so if they subsequently come together, they'll still persist. Whereas if lineages come together, they don't. they can obliterate each other, right? Um, because they're not necessarily reproductively isolated. So I, I've got a more traditional view. Now, the biological species concept's got warts on it because in sympatry, no problem. You you find that there's two genetic pools in the one lake. Even though they're morphologically identical, you say they're different species. No one argues. But in allopatry, like you expect differences to accrue uh, between lineages within a species because of the geographic isolation, that doesn't mean that you call them different species or subspecies they're just different lineages within a species which is what you'd expect and so um, where the population genetics comes in is you ask yourself the question you set up a null hypothesis you say the null hypothesis is that these are all one species and then you look at the evidence and say does the evidence is the evidence sufficient to reject that null hypothesis have they got the opportunity for gene flow If they have and they're still distinct, then that rejects your null hypothesis that they're the one species. And so, you know, you can use the the population genetics to examine whether or not there's gene flow across the landscape, whether it it follows uh, the pattern that you expect from their opportunity for uh, exchange of individuals, or are there abrupt breaks that are not consistent with their ability to... Exchange across the landscape, so it's, it's it's coming at it from a different direction, and then you you decide your species based on whether or not they've accrued uh, fixed allelic differences in, in a context of uh, potential gene flow. Um, now, if they're completely allopatric, you've still got that old problem of are they species or are they just lineages within species? So it doesn't solve it if they're completely allopatric. But if you study something like the southern mature across a landscape, you sample thoroughly across that landscape, there's no breaks, and then you look at the you look at the distribution of fixed differences across that landscape in the context of their opportunity to exchange, and you find there's a big set of fixed differences between two entities in there, you've got two species. If there's no fixed differences across that landscape, um, that you aren't representative necessarily of the ends of a climb, uh, then you say you've got one species well, strictly you say you have no evidence to reject the null hypothesis that there's only one species there. so that's the approach I take, and uh, it requires a lot of sampling so you have to you can't have gaps because if you have gaps you're going to have an artificial uh, break in the in, in the um, uh, sort of architecture of the genes uh, alleles across the landscape, so you've got to thoroughly Sample, and then you you um, address that null hypothesis. They're all the one species, and then if you've got the evidence to reject that, then you've got a couple of species. If you don't have the evidence to reject that, uh, then there might be species there, but you just don't have the evidence to show them, and so you, you, you don't change the status quo. So it's a sort of a, a very um, sort of poparian uh, approach to it using pop gen, coming from a different direction that the uh, phylogenetics come from. So once you've got your entities that are, that are um, uh, genetically distinct with fixed differences, so they're diagnosable, then you apply phylogeny to work out how they're related to each other. You see what I mean? You, so you don't apply the phylogeny to individuals and then try and work out where, where you're dealing with diagnosable entities and then define your species uh you do it the other way you use a fixed difference analysis to find your species and once you've worked out what the diagnosable lineages are which are species and lineages within species then you can apply your phylogeny to see how they are related in a in a bifurcating tree so so i'm on I'm, I'm on the outer on this um you know not not everyone agrees with this approach
0: right and it's australia in particular has had a pretty turbulent taxonomic history when it comes to turtles uh i'm curious it it, and a lot of that's based on kind of morphological work that's been done and it it just seems to be compared to other places it it's been really turbulent so i'm curious what your take on that is and and why that's been the case
2: i I think it comes from a frustration of a lack of progress on the morphological side so we had uh, john legler who was working uh, pretty intensively on the morphological side. He and John Cann published the Rhioditis description, the Eleusor description, Uh, excellent work, uh, published through appropriate channels. And then, of course, um, I guess bogged down by the exactitude of his science, um, he died before he published anything else. Um, And so that's really unfortunate. And there's a lot of frustration in in the uh, herpetological community about that. Uh, and instead of really, sort of people are rising up through the ranks to replace Legler, um, you know, like Scott Thompson has, and there are others who've raised up through the ranks. Um, instead of doing that and, and addressing the issue from a scientific perspective, we've we've had a breakout of um, people who who are throwing their ideas out there outside the. The mainstream scientific channels uh, and the cross-checks that are present in, in scientific publication, and and, uh, and that's causing a lot of grief. So, so basically, you know, without mentioning any names, there are people who are publishing uh, in their own journals. Like I say, their own journals in the sense that they're the editor uh, and they're also publishing, um, and the. Although they claim that it's peer review, you yeah, know, it's, it's really hard to see that it's peer review that meets the norms of scientific publication, which is independent, um, rigorous, expert uh, rebuttal of your ideas uh, and testing of your ideas before uh, publication occurs. That's a really important hallmark of science. Um, there are other cases, um, you know, so we're talking about hundreds if not thousands of species being described here, right? Like hundreds of species being described, but, but without a strong scientific foundation. And so the difficulty for, for a scientist is that if 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 someone puts a concept forward like that and it hasn't gone through peer review, so it hasn't been that pre-publication scrutiny, uh, then there's a massive amount of work if you want to follow through the scientific process to rebut it. Uh, so it's easy to throw an idea out there on a napkin. Really hard uh, to rebut it if there's no foundation for 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 what, no scientific foundation for what was put forward. And and this is the conundrum I think that that there's a lot of this stuff being published without a strong scientific foundation, and yet the scientists are expected to drop drop tools and start focusing on generating. Uh, evidence to show that those propositions are, are without foundation and, and you know people aren't willing to do that and and so you know my view is and we've really uh, addressed this through the Australian Society of Herpetologists is that if you don't publish through an accepted scientific channel uh, then people can elect to ignore your work and so that's very contentious because the um, the ICZN, the, the governing body over nomenclature, um, will, will argue that these, um, that when someone puts a name forward, uh, they have precedence. And then, of course, what that means is that the biology that they've attached to the taxon that they put the name to uh, has to be considered. And when that's done through, through a, some sort of personal publication without any cross-checks, uh, that creates that creates major problems that don't play any other discipline of science. So so when someone pr- proposed as they did in Queensland, their premier picked it up that there was a new uh, method of driving cars based on, that, that was solely driven by water. So you put water in your tank and, and it drives your car. It was revolutionary, except it wasn't published anywhere, and so you know it, it, it was ignored, right? When someone puts forward a proposition that they've discovered cold fusion and they publish it, that goes through peer review, so there's pre-publication scrutiny of the evidence, and then it's published, the whole scientific community swings behind that, even though it turned out to be wrong. The whole scientific community swings behind it. They spend millions of dollars to try and confirm or, or refute that proposition. That's the way science works. It, it, if those people have published their cold fusion idea on a napkin or on a milk carton, even though it meets the criteria of the ICZN, so, um, it's just resoundingly ignored by physicists. So, so the publication process is really important to me. And, and, you know, if you want to put forward a new species, do the hard yards, gather the evidence, put it before your peers to scrutinise it and rebut it, The onus is on you to prove that the species exists at that point. Once it's published, the onus is on everyone else to disprove it. So the onus switches at that point. And that's a really important part of the process, the peer review process. And these guys are bypassing that. So they're putting it out there and then it's up to the scientific community to rebut it. But it hasn't been through that process of presenting, putting the evidence before you, you know, experts in the field. So, you know, it's a problem for it's a problem for us in Australia. Uh, I think it arises because of our um, inherent and deeply rooted distrust of authority. So, so Australians are particularly known for that, and so we tend to have these people come out of the woodwork who just don't like being don't like authority, and and they see the scientific community as being this elite authority. And you know who are they um, to to be dictating? Uh, uh, you know, these these questions. So it's coming out of that sort of mentality, I think. And I can understand that because I've got a deep disrespect for authority. So um, anyway, so it's a problem for Australia. We've addressed it in Australia by having a positive list of journals, uh, which is the Web of Science journals plus journals produced by museums plus some others that we've added as a society. If it's not published in there. We can, we can all uh, choose to ignore it or not. Whereas under the previous regime, we couldn't choose to ignore it. And, and now we're saying, well, we can choose to ignore it.
0: It, it must be so, frustrating, too, coming from your perspective, having looked at questions. And, and that's sort of just proposing names, almost a lot of that, that taxonomic vandalism. But from your perspective, you've worked for years on a lot of these questions using really sort of deep, analytical, complex methodologies. And And you've traveled all around australia i mean thinking about the phylogenetic work that you did you had sites you were sampling all over and for someone to come in and just completely try to mess all of that up or add things that aren't at all with any sort of basis it's got to be really kind of a frustrating thing
2: yeah it's it's frustrating because so scientists expect to be rebutted right so you expect there's a couple of processes so when you submit something for publication it goes out for independent review the reviewers come back and you know they they go over it so that vertebrate zoology uh, article that scott thompson and i put out recently on the labrac that went to vertebr- the journal vertebrate zoology it went out to rigorous review it went backwards and forwards between the peer reviewer and us to to get and it's a much better manuscript as a result and and basically we we had to Convince those experts that that our evidence was sound, then once it, then it gets published, right? So that that process is uh, time-consuming and 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 essential, and, and to have people sort of um, bypass that uh, is, is the frustration. It's not it's not that that the work's being rebutted after all that work's been done. The actual thing that happens in scientific literature, like everyone expects that when you publish an article, someone's going to publish new evidence that suggests that maybe your ideas weren't quite right and and you expect that and that's that's good and healthy and you've been noticed but when it's done outside the scientific um, literature and we're forced by the iczn to acknowledge that uh, it becomes really problematic because a simple little thing so i could describe a species Uh, in my own published journal that's characterised by a red stripe on the side of the face that's only present in the absence of light, right? Now, that character is acceptable by the ICZN. It's completely unacceptable by science because it's irrefutable. If it's only present in the absence of light, you can't detect it. So so having a character like that is acceptable to the ICZN can be published in your own self-published magazine, is irrefutable by science. We could spend an infinite number of dollars trying to refute that and you couldn't do it. it, it this is really frustrating that, that there's no scrutiny of the evidence before it gets published. And I've, I've got a blog on this that um, talks about the onus of proof and it talks about uh, Bertrand Russell's teapot, which sits halfway between the, the sun and the earth. And someone proposes it's there, the onus is on them to prove it's there and provide the evidence. The onus is, isn't on others to disprove that it's there. So so this is the problem. If they come up with a new species, the onus is on you to prove that it exists. And the peer review process is where you do that. Once it gets through the peer review process and it's published, then the scientific community assumes it exists. And then they gather evidence to sort of either confirm or refute that. That's the process. These guys are bypassing it. They're just throwing species out there uh, without that pre-publication scrutiny, of the evidence. And, and so they're, they're proposing these Burton Russell teapots all over the place. And, and we're expected to acknowledge that they exist and, and then to prove that they don't. Well, that's not the way science works. And, and that's the frustration, I think. It's, it's, it's not that we're being criticised.
0: Right. It's it's just sort of vandalism. I, I think it's good to get that out there and, and uh, for people to think about that. Cause, but it, it, to me, it's interesting. I, I've always thought this should be the case everywhere, but the fact that they're sort of underpinning societally in Australia where you get that sort of distrust of authority and such, it, it sort of maybe manifests in, in, in taxonomy a bit more than it does in other places. So that that's interesting to hear. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh.
2: we're we're different. we Americans are independent, and we're independent, but there's a difference in our independence. Like, you know, like um, it's, it's it's subtly different uh, the way in which we're uh, suspicious of authority. Um, like I see in America, there's a lot of uh, distrust of authority, and uh, and that uh, is a very subtle difference between the way that manifests in Australia compared to the way it manifests in in, in the United States um and 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 the way you're seeing it manifest in this instance i think in the way that people are you know happy to challenge authority in the way that these uh i, I won't call them vandals because I, I just think they've got a different ethic they're not scientists why should i expect them to have a scientific ethic uh, they've got a different ethic yeah it might be he who dies with most turtles wins <laughs> like, uh, who knows what ethic they've got so i tend to avoid the word uh, vandalism but yeah they're just just they're not Science, they're not practicing science, so why should scientists take notice of it?
0: Right, going back to some of the stuff that uh is interesting about the the Australian phylogenetic work you did with the turtles, uh, a lot of that is the stuff that gets put in the paper is obviously very interesting, but there's some level of that in terms of going out and sampling in the field that that isn't pertinent to discuss in a, a manuscript. But I'm curious what that experience was like and going and getting the samples the adventures you had if there was anything that stands out as just something that was really interesting from from doing the field work necessary for that
2: oh i I just love field work i mean i love being out in the bush um you know i sleep on the ground in a swag um it's just a Fantastic experience being out in the field, and and you've got a purpose when you're out there. So, yeah, I'm not the sort of a guy who go go and lie on a beach for a couple of weeks and have a holiday. That just it's just if I don't have a purpose, uh, and it's got to be a fairly strong one. At any point in time, I'm not happy. And so you you you're in the field, you're enjoying yourself. I'm not exactly. I'm, I wouldn't say I'm a recreational ecologist, but I do really enjoy. Being out in the field and doing something that's got a real purpose to it, and and I have had some exciting times. Um, uh, you know, Brad Schaefer might have mentioned the exciting time and consequences of our trip in New Guinea, or he might not have. But uh, but I've had exciting times. So my wife, is really tolerant. I've, I've had situations where I've been measuring uh, temperatures of pig-nosed turtle nests before data loggers were uh, affordable. Where uh, I had to go up the river every. Uh, forty yeah, hour and fifteen minutes to measure the temperatures, and I was up the river, and the uh, Bruce Lose's program was on, and uh, the the landowners and Aboriginal rangers drove three hundred head of steer through our camp where my wife was with a with a um sort of four year old uh, son and, and and baby, and uh, and like they trashed the camp, and she was hiding behind a tree. The Aboriginal rangers were trying to. The horsemen were trying to keep the steer away. They had these big horns. that were goring the horses in the chest, and like it was a complete mess. And I came back and like <laughs> you know, put, put 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 back down the river and come back and find the camp was a complete, completely
0: trash. Oh.
2: And there was my wife and two kids, like in the midst of it. Uh, like you know, that that's sort of yeah. You know, there's lots of things go wrong. Uh, when you're out in the field but we, we, you know we survive them and uh, and later you know it becomes a great story at parties but at the time it can be quite uh, challenging. So there's been a bit of that. Um, catching snakes has always uh, been a passion. Uh, uh, it's sort of always, it's always an adrenaline hit. Um, that sort of thing like the field work like reptiles I'm a herpo underneath uh but i also do research and i married the two which is really pleasing to be able to do
1: what was it like to work with Emidura crepti on uh crepti on fraser island for your thesis
2: uh, it was fantastic so fraser island's um about 100 kilometers long it's the biggest sand island in the world i think and it's got 40 dune lakes uh, and these dune lakes are all isolated so they've never been connected to the sea and so they've got really unique um attributes and they're acid lakes and they're oligotrophic lakes and so you've got these turtles in there there's actually three species but the imagery are really interesting and they um they're melanistic and they're small and melanism and pygmyism often go together but they're 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 really small so the um the males will mature at uh, four inches, uh, whereas on the mainland they'll they'll mature they won't mature until they uh, maybe fifteen inches. Just talking in American yeah. lingo there, uh, fifteen inches. So um, and they're the same species. So genetically, there, there's not very much difference between them at all. Uh, so this is an environmental um, sort of influence on the body size of these animals, which I find uh, fascinating. Um, and it, it's probably epigenetic inheritance involved in the body size, which I think is a, a proposition that uh, warrants examination. And we have the tools to do that now. Uh, it's the same as the pygmy crocodiles up in Arnhem land. So pygmy cro- crocodiles above the, the falls, crocodiles below the falls get to seven foot. Take the eggs from the pygmy crocodiles upstream Incubate them out, feed them up, and you get fat pygmies, right? So, so yeah. is this uh, an inheritance through traditional genetic uh, mechanisms? And if so, how is that sustained when you've got the big ones and the little ones in the same river? Or is it an epigenetic thing, multi-generational thing that takes a while to to overcome? Uh, that that's a really interesting question, I think. And it's the same with these little turtles. So, is it? Is it epigenetic inheritance in the same way that famine in human beings uh, leaves epigenetic signatures in the grandchildren uh, after a famine? And the same happens in sheep. So, so that, that I think is really worth having a, a good look at now that we can uh, look at methylome, methylomes in, in these animals and, and look for correlations in the methylation marks that, um, that go across uh, generations and, and like in, in humans and, and mammals, the, the methylation of our genomes is reset twice um, and obliterated, basically, almost entirely. But in fish, uh, that's not the case. The methylation marks aren't obliterated. So, yeah, what's happening in reptiles? So in some fish, I should say, what's happening in reptiles um, are some of these Experiential changes to the methylation patterns in the genome passed on to the offspring, and do they influence the body size? Like it's, it's tractable now, someone could do that work. Um, whereas when, when the ideas first uh sprang into people's heads, it, it was not, it was intractable, you, you had no way of uh, addressing that question. So, again, a young person needs to come along and have a good look at that.
0: What, what do you think about the likelihood? of methylation factoring into megacephaly in, in turtles and development of huge, large heads and restructuring of the cranium? Uh, well, I mean, the,
2: so methylation, uh, there's different types of methylation, but methylation is involved in uh, differential gene expression in cells within your body. So your heart cells are heart cells and your liver cells are liver cells because some genes are switched on, some genes are switched off. And methylations, um, either histone methylation or DNA methylations, are uh, directly involved in that process of cellular differentiation. So when you get a developmental change like um, uh, megacephaly, uh, presumably there's some changes in the cells that are leading to that, uh, and methylation uh, could could well be a, a part of um, of of uh, driving those changes um, in, in response to say eating mollusks or. Or, or, you know, some uh, dietary uh, change that that occurs locally, so the animal adapts to the dietary availability phenotypically because of processes that lead to that phenotypic change, which would involve methylation. So again, you could you could look at that uh, and 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 try and work out, you know, what what genes are being switched on and switched off by methylation that are involved in megacephaly yeah. Again, it's, it's tractable it's a tractable question now.
0: Yeah. It's, it's another sort of a lot of it, throughout the conversation, a lot of different questions have come up. So anyone listening, that's, uh, and, and a lot of the listeners are students, uh, pursuing turtle work. So a lot of good ideas. Yeah. Um,
2: well, what I would say is what an exciting time to be in biology because, um, the, this genomic revolution is, is, um, is just that it, it the ability to be able to read the genomes of species, uh, the pan genome. So looking at uh, genomics across individuals and looking at variability, looking at the methylation of those genomes in, in different cell lines and, um, uh, and, and how that governs development. All these things are opening up, not, not just for human health and in medicine, but, but as they might forge forward with all the techniques and analyses and things, uh, we, we can capitalize that in the turtle world and draw those techniques into answer some really interesting questions in, in the turtle world. So, you know, as a, you know, what an exciting time to be in biology if you're a young person. I mean, it's just a phenomenal uh, future ahead in, in, in terms of the sorts of things you can do.
0: That's I think that's a really good message. Uh, th- there's one more thing I'm interested in touching on and we can start to sort of wrap up um, uh, is the, the, I'm, I'm sort of personally curious what the latest with the uh, Maya Kelly's Georgia side we spoke a bit about, but there were some issues with disease in that population. I'm curious what the latest with that is.
2: So the, the animal, um, so in 2015, a virus um, proliferated through the river at, at a pace that was hard to understand, it was very rapid, um, and the turtles succumbed to it, the adults. And so they, they got sick. And then they, they got scud as well. But, you know, when turtles get sick, they tend to get secondary infections. And so they got scud, which was, you know, all the swollen eyes and uh, all those um, things that you, you see in captivity if, they, if the water quality deteriorates. Uh, and then they died. And so almost all of them died. So it's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's catastrophic, isn't it? Because they're only found in that one river. Um, and so it's catastrophic that they would, uh, that all the adults pretty much would die. Um, so basically before they all succumbed to the disease, 18 animals were taken out uh, by Western Sydney University and now Taronga Zoo. Um, and another group of animals were taken out by um, an- another um, zoo. So we have an insurance colony. And they're breeding and producing offspring and those offspring are being released back into the river uh, to try and uh, boost the population. So there's a number of research questions here that again would be a focus for study. Uh, One is those animals that survived the adults, uh, did they survive because they didn't encounter the disease or did they survive because their immune system was such that they were able to resist the disease? If that second one's the case, then you can Look at the MHC genes and find out whether there's any uh, indication as to how they manage to resist the disease. and then you can uh, do some genetic uh, um, manipulation. So you can do some breeding manipulations informed by genetics to build up that MHC uh, complement in the animals that you're going to release. and And you could, if if you're allowed, you could actually manipulate that through uh, genetic engineering uh, to increase that uh, diversity uh, to release the animals into the into the wild. So, th- so that's a really pressing question. Those Do, animals that survived in the wild survive because they avoided the disease because they're resistant. Um, that's an important thing. The, the second really critical thing is whether those animals, when they when they are released, when they grow up to adulthood, are they all going to die? So, so is the is the species good put? In the sense that we can do all we like to head start these little uh, young animals from the insurance colony uh, back into the population, but when they grow up to become adults, they succumb to this disease and die. So um, that that that's why it's so important to do that genetic work to see whether you can build in uh, resistance uh, to the animals you're releasing. So that that's uh, fascinating. the The other fascinating aspect of this is that the imadura got into that uh, river um and spread through it and uh they're not they don't succumb to the disease and they're hybridizing with the george's eye in that river um so are they conveying uh that resistance to some of the individ- some of the hybrids um in which case you know you've got a bit of genetic rescue going on there um or you know uh, is the hybridization going to be rampant and just wipe- wipe the george's eye out through genetic swamping you know the, the, there's an important question there that needs to be addressed um, I, 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 the jury's out on it I don't know we've got latter sternum for example hybridising with um, crefti uh, in in the, in the wild but those two species are maintaining their identity uh, so maybe maybe the same's happening with the uh, george's eye it's, it's maintaining its identity but there's a little bit of influx of genetic Material from the imagura which may help rescue them from this terrible virus. Uh, yeah, it's a lot of work to be done there to to try and see um, what the future for this species is. But it was interesting that the genetic work I did to look for the hybrids found one hybrid in the insurance colony, so uh, so it was taken out. Um, so the yeah you know, the insurance colony is now pure George's eye uh, disease free. Uh, so, yeah, that's where genetics can can assist. Um, the other thing is that genetics now shows that the genetic variability in, in the Georgia's is, eye is very, very low. And so it's only 75 kilometres long, the range of this species in the river. And so it's probably in a bottleneck at the moment, in a genetic bottleneck, and has been for a long, long time, and it's eroded its genetic diversity. And, and that erosion of genetic diversity has made it like the Irish potato, uh, particularly vulnerable to a novel virus when it when it does get in there. So, yeah, yeah, in terms of research, there's a lot to be done, a lot of exciting work to be done. And you can bring the new power of genetics and genomics to bear in, in, in assisting this species.
0: Yeah, it's sort of an open call. and and something that's, I mean, a virus like that could wipe out the population very rapidly, so uh, it's sort of a good thing to know conservation-wise. In terms of, uh, one more thing on that, actually, that was interesting to me is you you did some sort of almost population genetic work with the Manning River turtles and uh, the other species, Kelly's, and it seemed like the differentiation in in All my Kellys, except for a Belli, was fairly low. I'm I'm interested in why that is.
2: So, yeah, so Belli um, occupies the headwaters of the Murray-Darling River, uh, which is our biggest river. Like, it's a a, uh, very large river. Uh, And it occupies the headwaters in the granitic areas, so where the substrate uh, is granite-based. Uh, and where the streams are flowing fast over a rocky bed, uh, they occupy those headwaters and those headwaters are isolated from each other uh, because uh, by the lowlands. so so they occupy the headwaters and they're isolated by the lowlands. And so you've had this um, divergence over time in the populations in the Severn River, in the uh, Guida River and in the Namoy River, they've isolated over time and diverged genetically and so, they, Genetic divergence um, or genetic diversity uh, is represented by what can be maintained in a single drainage uh, and what the differences are across the drainages. Whereas uh, George's eye doesn't have that, it's only in one drainage. So, so basically, eye has got the advantage of being split over a number of localities, each of which have maintained their own suite of genetic diversity uh, to make the whole uh, greater uh, than, than is possible in George's eyes. That, that's what's happened there.
0: Okay. Yeah. Um, and Latter-Soonum,
2: Latter-Soonum, of course, is a species complex. Uh, so there's more than one species there. No one's done the hard yards to separate them out, but it, it's going to be very genetically diverse, um, certainly in the mitochondria. Um, so mitochondria are funny. So mitochondria, like turtles sort of, Australian turtles anyway, sort of hand them out like confetti at illicit weddings. Like they're sort of just... Hand their mitochondria across to uh, other species. So, Kaledyna expansa, for example, has lost its mitochondria altogether. So, in Queensland, it's got Kaledyna canine-derived mitochondria, and in Murray Darling, it's got Kaledyna longicolis-derived uh, mitochondria, and its mitochondria has gone. Uh, so, so it's been they've been exchanging a little mitochondria. Uh, so, so with the latter sternum, you've got um, a four a, a distinct mitochondrial clades, but the clades aren't sister to each other. So there's been some pinching of mitochondria from other species and teasing that out. So we we started doing latus sternum uh, in the same way as we did the southern imagura. uh, But it got so complicated, we we just stopped and put it aside for a while until we can work out what's going on in more detail. So a lot of genetic diversity in latus sternum,
0: I I suspect. It probably is good that a lot of the early attempts were based on a protein electrophoresis as opposed to using mitochondrial genes i can't imagine what the phylogenies would look like if you had used that knowing that that they're sort of
2: (laughs) yeah yeah well so the mitochondria is a single gene right so you've got gene tree issues um where the mitochondrial phylogeny can be different from the phylogeny of the species that contain them uh, that's a bit of an issue. Um, whereas the uh, allozymes, you know, you got forty-five independent nuclear markers uh, indirectly through the proteins, and so in a sense, the SNPs are, are paralleling the the allozyme electrophoresis, except it's directly measuring the DNA, whereas the allozyme electrophoresis measures the proteins that arose from the DNA. So, so the two, those two are more similar than the mitochondria, I think. What we'll find with the mitochondrial phylogenies is that they don't uh they don't always accurately reflect the phylogeny of the species that carries them and so you get a really good highly robust highly supported through bootstrap um mitochondrial phylogeny but it doesn't reflect the phylogeny of the of the species that carry it and the, the good example of that is that kelodyner expansa. so when you do a phylogeny of the kelodyna You've got Kilodiner expanses sitting up with canine and you've got other kilodonar expanses sitting with longer collars, and that's because they because that little bit of um s- sneaky shuffling of mitochondria across their uh species boundaries uh, so mitochondrial genomes of uh, mitochondrial phylogenies have warts on them i think
0: right right that's the the, the genomic <laughs> yeah. revolution is going to be big <laughs> in terms of yeah uh, as you said um it, so kind of going into wrapping things up, we also like to kind of focus on the adventure side of things. And we've done that and sort of weaved it through a conversation, but I'm curious that of all the places you've worked where in the field, it's been the most interesting and and your favorite place to work in the field.
2: Yeah, it's definitely um, Papua New Guinea and I'm bitterly disappointed. I didn't discover it in my twenties. Um, so it's on Australia's border and, um, it's an astonishing place to work. I mean, I, I decided to work up in the Trans Fly, uh, which is on the border of Papua New Guinea with uh, uh, Indonesian Papua, and it's west of the Fly River, so it's really remote. And uh, it was so exciting. Um, so, unfortunately, the people that heralded my visit uh, upplayed my status. Um, and so, I was a, a big man from you know, Australia, uh, and presumably influential when when I was looking for turtles. I love turtles. And um, so it it was a bit of a miscommunication. So so the villagers would um, uh, spend days preparing for my my arrival. And the way they work uh, when they welcome someone uh, is that they get in all their apparel with all their traditional gear on, and then they... They basically demonstrate to you that they could have killed you, but they chose not to, right? So, and every village had a different way of scaring the living daylights out of you. So, the first village I went to, they there they all were, you know, in an ark and they were playing their drums, and they had all their traditional stuff on, all the colours, and and they're welcoming me into the village, and they're backing up in an ark and I was walking forward, and then these young men are built like Brick shithouses, right? They are very strong. And two of them leapt through this arc, leapt up in the air like that, and pointed a bow and arrows at my chest and then released the string, but the string wasn't on the arrow, right? So they just released the string, but the arrow didn't get released. And they were literally up in the air like that, and bam. And like, I just, you know, I was, yeah shocked. And, and I was told that if I hadn't reacted in the way that I did, they would have gone to plan B. Heaven knows what that was. So, so that was one. And then every village I went to had a different way of doing it. And, and it just came as a surprise each time. One of them had a uh, they had a, uh, a bamboo, piece of bamboo that they slit and, and heat it in the fire and push it down and bulge out. And they use this to kill people without damaging their skulls because they're headhunters, right? And so he leapt at me and brought this thing down within a centimeter of my forehead. And and they and they all screamed at the same time, so like it was like it was like a scared the wits out of me. And then they had um and then the women turned up and they had two, each, each of them had a basket. One and I said, what are these baskets for? And they said, oh that that. That was for your head. You know, we we would put your head in that and take it back to the village. So, and then I got back to the village, and there they all were, and they did all this dancing and everything. And then I look over, and there's this guy with a head in his hand. (laughs) Like it must have been from his grandfather or something, because they haven't they haven't actually killed anyone for a long time. But and and when the westerners came through, they cleared all that stuff out, right? But this one, they managed to keep. So he has this—he has his he this shrunken head in his hand, like, and I've got a photograph of it. Like there it is, but, you know, I, I didn't see it at the time. I took the photograph, and then there he is, standing there with his head in his hand. And so, um, so each village uh, in turn um, just just tried to scare the wits out of me. And so that that was just fascinating, um, fascinating trip. Uh, to get there, we had to uh, drive from. Um, one place to another um, over over to uh, uh we had to drive over and uh, they'd arranged a vehicle for me. But the vehicle the the guy had put it in for service and gone to Port Moresby. It's a nice uh, Toyota, and they thought, oh, he won't be back for a while. We'll let, we'll we'll use his vehicle. So he stole the vehicle, gave it to us. So we're driving along in this vehicle, and the next minute the police um, chase us down in a four wheel drive. And, uh, I, you know, it's been a stolen vehicle. It'd pile us out, take the vehicle back. So there seemed to be no consequences for anyone. And then they found another vehicle, which was like a complete wreck. It had no brakes at all. And so we're screaming along cycle paths in a four-wheel drive with no brakes at high speed and no seatbelts, nothing, um, with about 10 people piled in the back. Like, I don't know what oh and would have thought of this but <laughs> well, that, was, that was really exciting and then, then we got to the um, uh, we, we got to the place uh, and then we had to pile into a canoe which is hollowed out of a tree and we had, there were 10 of us and a dog in this hollowed out tree with a, a 25 horsepower outboard going through this sookie swamps to go from village to village to collect the turtles and uh, yeah, that, that was pretty good, a big, big tree 17 metres I think it was massive Massive hollowed-out trees. Um, so, you know, they're, they're adventures, right? That's uh, And you're in the middle of nowhere and then, you know, you, you end up out, out with people and you, you've been with them for about three weeks and you find that one of them has just been released from jail, you know, for certain things. And the other one had a big split in his head where the police caught him doing something and split his head open. So, you know, you, you're there with these guys telling you about how how their grandfathers used to eat white fellows and they're sitting around the fire saying when the last of white fellow was eaten and what the circumstances were and you know, and all this, and then one will reach over and grab you by the stomach and go, hmm, greasy. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's
2: good. <laughs> uh, so I mean that field work in New Guinea is just something out of this world. And the people are so friendly and so can do. Something goes wrong, you know, they got a way of fixing it. Doesn't matter what it is. Vehicle stolen and taken off you by the police, another vehicle's hands up. Like, <laughs> just uh, can do people
0: and very friendly. What's amazing part. Yeah. <laughs> what was the story with Dr. Schaefer? We he mentioned that you and him had done work, but he didn't go into any detail. I, I'm curious about that. I, I don't know. If he didn't tell you about it, it's probably best I don't. But, um, <laughs> All right.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, he had a medical um, e- episode in Papua New Guinea, which was uniquely Papua New Guinean, and, uh, and we were very remote, and, uh, it, and the plane that took us there had a faulty engine, and so when we went to go back, it, it really couldn't take us back, so it took days. Um, and then finally they put us on the plane and I think they decided they were going to have trouble explaining how they had passengers on a plane with a faulty engine when they got back to Port Moresby. So they dropped us off at Kikori on dusk and uh, yeah, the story went on from there. So yeah, it's sort of interesting story, but maybe you have another interview with Brad to talk about it.
0: Yeah, we may have to do that. All right, well, that, just one more thing, and, and we'll sort of wrap up. Uh, this has been, I mean, the adventures are, are really interesting. thing I'm also curious about, you've definitely really, really ambitious in terms of the work that you've done and the questions you've tackled. I'm curious what the most rewarding project has been, and, well, the, the most – Sort of to rephrase that, what is the most intensive project you've worked on in terms of how rigorous it was to do and was it the most rewarding project when it was finished?
2: Yeah, so as a herpetologist, I guess the the most um, rewarding project was the Sex and Dragons project. Um, So, you know, really, it's it's sort of been transformational in how we... uh, think about sex determination and it's been a passage for me because like in you know 15 years ago you know i would have been hard hard pressed to explain what a gene was right um so you know working through uh the projects which i led um from funded by the arc i think there's been about five of them now the latest one was uh the, the largest uh, grant awarded in the year by the ARC, so we even uh, uh, sort of in monetary terms we even uh, exceeded what was given to the astronomers. So, so it's a really big project that involves uh, medical institutes, the uh, QIMR, uh, the Garvin Institute, two medical institutes, uh, all looking at this the intricacies of sexing dragons, and and I think really that's been really satisfying because of the people I've uh, been able to work with who are high performing, um, driven uh, individuals with a real commitment to science. Um, so in the last grant, uh, not this one last grant I think we got I think we got 38 uh, papers out all together on different aspects of uh, sex in dragons in in leading journals and and this is because of the energy and dedication of the team uh, that, that I was driving and, and so I think, I think that's been the most satisfying and, and one of the reasons it's been the most satisfying is because I moved from what's called uh, a mode one researcher where you just work on your own uh, and, and you publish papers on your own and you're following your own passion to um, you know under the uh, publish or perish mantra uh, and I've moved uh, quite deliberately into the mode two research where you work as part of a team and it's partner or perish. Uh, as well as publish or perish, so I moved into that. And so it's not built into my nature to, you know, pretty introverted sort of individual, so it's not really in my nature to be able to uh, work constructively with uh, teams of other people. And I think that growing into that uh, uh, new environment and being so productive and making the discoveries we've made and seeing the excitement in the the younger people when they they make a discovery has all been... Fantastic for me. I, I really think it's been a, a crowning uh, sort of uh, component to my career, which I, I guess is going to end at some point. Given I'm seventy, probably got a maximum likelihood of living to seventy-seven. Uh, so, you yeah, uh, know, it's been really, it's been really rewarding that that those last few years. Um, so, I, I'd put that that first. Interesting. Uh,
0: yeah, and yeah. and sort of to end us off here the last question we like to just inquire is um if you have one piece of advice for someone looking to make turtle research or turtles part of or just a a whole career uh what would that be
2: uh i guess you you make sure it's your passion so so you don't do it as a deliberate decision that's going to be coming pretty deep from inside you that you really want to work on turtles uh, and they're special in terms of their life history attributes and everything that makes them so successful as a, as a, a sort of lineage uh, as fruit there for investigation. And you, you've got to be passionate about it. Uh, the, the second thing is uh, associate yourself with, um, with, with people who are um, in well-resourced labs and uh, who, who have been through it and been successful and delivered uh, in a context that they appreciate. You're you're in now, so so you know you, you want to attach yourself with a winning lab uh, of some sort. Don't 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 do what I did when I was younger, and uh, you know I was in a, a backwater really uh, when I was doing my PhD, and I suffered for that in some ways. Uh, I became very independent because I didn't have much assistance, but um, you know I, I suffered in terms of the fact that uh, the that insulation and not being with with the leading lights in in, in the area. So, you know, the, in uh, recent times, perhaps not right now, but because these guys are getting older. But uh, you know, the the Justin Congdon's of the world, and um, you know, the, the the people that are um, really pushing the the um, foundations of understanding in the turtle world. You want to identify them and associate uh, yourself with them as a Student or as a postdoctoral fellow, and and then the other thing is uh, just get skilled up. Uh, the world's changing; it's changing really rapidly in terms of skill sets. Um, get skilled up so be the best at 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 least some elements of the skills that you need to do your work, so that you've got something to come to the table with in terms of collaboration with other people. So if that's modelling or um, programming or life history um analysis or some aspect or or genetics be be good at something so that when you when when you approach other people for collaborations you've got something to bring to the table um so that'd be the three things you know make sure you've got a passion make sure you link up with you know people who are leading lights in your your field that, that can you can launch off their shoulders and then uh the last thing is make sure that you keep up with the latest in uh, in the technologies that are coming to bear in areas like morphology where you've got 3D scanning and all that. Make sure you're up to breast with at least one of those so that you've got something to bring to the table in collaborations.
0: Yeah, I think it's a really holistic overview of, of things. And we'll definitely all take that. Should definitely do the same. I think that uh, it's it's really great advice. Um, so, it, it sort of is it unless anyone else has anything uh, that you want to say? Um, we we do at the end do a little round of turtle trivia. We've done this forty four times with about fifty guests now. Um, here it comes. I I I try to mention that to everyone beforehand but i forgot and i've forgotten for the past 20 or so guests but i don't know if you've got a turtle obscure turtle trivia question uh that you want to ask us or we can throw one your way however you want to do it
2: trivia question i I mean the the one we get asked in australia the most is uh what's the difference between a turtle and a tortoise Uh, because in australia we used to call them all tortoises um and then we've gradually moved to the uh, to the international uh norms of calling uh anything that swims in freshwater a a turtle and so that's the question i get asked the most and my answer is it's all in the spelling
0: yeah (laughs) i don't know if that's trivial enough for you but (laughs) in in terms of the fact that just all tortoises are turtles, not all turtles are tortoises, that sort of, or, or is there something more to that?
2: <laughs> no, no. I think, uh, so basically we don't have tortoises in the sense of desert tortoises. And so we made a distinction between marine turtles and freshwater tortoises. Mm. And, and they still do. So in Western Australia, they still call it the Western Swamp Tortoise, even though it's a turtle. Um, so it, it still persists. And so in the public mind, that, that's the question that always comes up, even if I'm talking a, a primary school or something. The hand will go up and out will come that question. Um, I don't know if there's anything else. I mean, I, I get that question, Yeah, you know, when I'm giving a talk, I've got the turtle in my hand and someone will put the hand up and say you're not supposed to hold turtles upside down because they don't have a diaphragm and they can't breathe. Well, yeah, I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know where it comes from, because you've got a solid shell, so it's not as if the yeah viscera viscera might rearrange. But but and also a turtle can hold its breath for two hours. So like yeah, that's that's a bit of trivia, and uh, I don't know whether it's true or not. So it needs to be in a trivia quiz so that we can make a decision as to whether it's true or not.
0: Well, that's good. I mean, I mean that's uh, some good questions. Stuff to think about, too. It's sort of open ended questions in some ways. So,
2: um, yeah. So, what's your trivia question for me?
0: Oh, well, we can, yeah, we can throw one your way. Uh, it's again on the spot. I don't know, Jack or Ken, do you guys have one on the top of your mind here?
1: Trying to construct something, but I don't, I don't know if it'll we'll be quick enough.
2: I'm not letting you off the hook. You put me on the hook now. You you're on the hook we, we
1: even said we would do it. Uh okay.
0: I've 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 got one. I uh yeah, okay, I've got one. Uh th- this is one that's that's appropriate for uh Jack and I and a few other guys were out in the field a few days ago working with uh graptomies, map turtles. Uh, in terms of the, this is a kind of a jack question, but I'm I'm asking it. Which map turtle has the lo- the widest and largest head of all fourteen species?
2: I've got no idea.
0: It well, it's it's uh it's the one we were working with, barber's map turtle. they it's uh, something else. They've got just insanely large heads for crushing yeah. mollusks. the females do at least males you could probably make an argument i bet they're also kind of the largest in terms of males but
1: they're like know. some of the female emidura like that they get super megacephalic like really right, okay. really really but their body mass uh, is like 25 times that of the males so
2: yeah yeah right yeah sorry uh not that familiar i've only been to the u.s a couple of times so I'm not really familiar with that one, so you got me on that one. I think we have to have an Aussie Aussie trivia competition. That's like not, and you can have your own uh, US trivia competition.
0: That's fair. All right, yeah. uh, Jack or Ken, <laughs> you guys have an Australian turtle-related question. That's a tougher one because, <laughs> hmm, uh, uh. what do you think? Oh, I okay. I've got one. I, I've got one related to uh, Australian turtles that that was came up. We recently had Scott Thompson and uh, Gerald uh, Kukling on to talk about the Western Swamp Tortoise turtle, and uh, so they at one point they fenced in the habitat for for that species, and there was a problem with the fencing in. They thought it would help, but it didn't help what did the fencing do that was not good for the 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 turtles
2: yeah so there's such a thing called the fence effect i don't know if you've uh, seen krebs's work on the fence effect where they put a fence around uh, a particular area and the voles went through the roof in population numbers and ate themselves out of house and home Uh, because dispersal is a really uh, important uh, component of population regulation in some species and in bandicoots it appears that's probably similar and so when they put the fence around uh the bandicoot numbers built up uh because they weren't dispersing and then they started eating the turtle eggs so um so basically they had the the, that problem of fence effect uh driving up the population artificially of the bandicoots and that having an impact on the on the turtles as i understand it but uh maybe i'm wrong
0: nope that was right and i it i was not aware that the fence effect was something that was uh well established so i learned in the process of asking the question <laughs> yeah that's right. so they need to put little
2: little um trap that let the uh out but not back in um if if they want to um alleviate the fence effect we we have the same thing in our um in our uh, sort of reserves in Canberra, we have a fenced Mulligan's Flat, uh, and there's a fence effect there that requires management of the population numbers inside, and they can manage the grey kangaroo numbers, uh, which would, would naturally uh, go up as a result of that fence effect. Uh, but uh, they're not; they can't manage the uh, the red wallabies because they're a native species that's not able to be managed in the same same way legally, and so they've gone through the roof. Uh, eating the place out of house and home and that dramatically affects uh, all the other species in there including the long-necked turtles so uh, that fence effect is something that needs to be recognized and managed uh, very actively
0: interesting that's an issue across australia not just with the the swamp turtles so it's good to know Hmm. all right well we could throw one more or we can wrap up if jack or ken if you guys have something uh but well, we've, we've been going for a while, but it's been, been really an honour. Uh, Dr. George, thanks for sitting with us and telling us your work. And, uh, it's really awesome.
2: No, it's been really interesting for me as well, and great to see you guys uh, are so enthusiastic about getting this out to a broader audience and uh, and the amount of work you put into the, the questions and the depth of your knowledge uh Uh, Goes beyond what I'm normally confronted with when I'm talking, say to journalists. So uh, yeah, I just commend you on that. It's been uh, really, really a pleasure talking to you guys. So uh, hopefully, if you come out to Australia, you can catch up. uh, We can catch up. So uh, yeah, let us know if you're ever coming out this way.
0: Go ahead, Jack. No, no. Not saying anything. No, I thought. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll definitely take you up on that. And on our list of. Turtle life lists and and just going exploring. So uh, thanks again, and we'll uh, sign off for now. So for everyone, right, this is Colony Cast episode forty-four. We'll see you next time.